You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Tracy Kidder. This program originally aired in 2009. Good evening. I'm going to read a little bit to start. Burundi, June 2006. As we drove through southwestern Burundi, I felt as if we were being followed by the mountain called Ganza, the way a child feels followed by the moon. The road climbed through deeply folded countryside. We would round a corner, and another broad face of Ganza would appear. <clears throat> then my companion, Deo Gracias, would order the driver to stop. Dale would get out of the SUV and stand on the shoulder of the pavement, aiming his digital camera at the mountain. Dale wore a black bush hat with a dangling chin strap. I supposed that the people passing by in the crowded minibuses and on the bicycles laden with plastic jugs of palm oil, he must look like a tourist, a trim, young, black-skinned, rich man from somewhere far away. Standing beside him at the roadside, I could look down on narrow valleys of cultivated fields and up at steep hillsides, some covered with grass, others quilted with groves of eucalyptus and banana trees and dotted with tiny houses roofed in metal or thatch. Above them rose the flanks and the domed top of Ganza, all but treeless, barren of houses. In Kurundi, Ganza means to reign, and the name evoked the kings that once ruled Burundi. The little nation, centuries old, straddles the crest of the watershed of the Congo and Nile rivers just south of the equator in East Central Africa. It is bordered by Tanzania to the south and east, by the Democratic Republic of the Congo across Lake Tanganyika to the west, and by Rwanda to the north. It's a landlocked and impoverished country with an agrarian economy that exports excellent coffee and tea and not much else, a land of dwindling forests that still has lovely rustic landscapes. Dale could hardly take his eyes off Ganza. He was thronged by memories. All the summers of his boyhood, once a week and sometimes twice, he and his older brother had toiled over the mountain, climbing impossibly steep paths, their knees shaking under the loads balanced on their heads. Back then, the land out there had all been thickly forested, and in the trees and under them, he used to see chimps, monkeys, even gorillas. They were all gone now, he said, but there had been so many monkeys then. One time, he and his brother sat down to rest partway up another mountain, and a host of monkeys surrounded them like a gang of little thugs, harassing them, trying to take their sacks of cassava, even slapping them right in their faces. In the end, there was nothing for him and his brother to do but run away, leaving the cassava behind. When he told me this story, Deo laughed. It was what I had come to recognize as his normal laugh. It had the same bright, surprised near soprano sound as his voice when he greeted a friend and cried out, hi, the hi drawn out as if he didn't want it to end. His English was accented with French and Kurundi and sprinkled with misplaced emphases, as in, I am laughing when I think about it. And many of his phrases had a certain hybrid vigor, a fresh extravagance. I want to get it out of my chest, run like a thunderstorm. I had to bite my heart. Deo grew up in the mountains east of Ganza in a tiny settlement of farms and pastures called Butanza. He had returned to Burundi several times over the past six years, but he had avoided Butanza. He had not visited it for nearly 14 years. Now he was going back at last. He seemed happy to see Ganza again, but when we drove farther east toward Butanza, he grew not silent, but increasingly quiet. One noticed this 
because he was usually so talkative and animated. After a while, we turned off the paved road onto dirt roads. The dirt roads grew narrower. Finally, as we bumped along up a steep, rutted track, Deo said we were getting close. He said that when we arrived, we would climb on foot to the pasture where, many years ago, his best friend Clovis took sick. We would visit the very spot, he said. Then he added, and when we get to Butanza, we don't talk about Clovis. Why? Because people don't talk about people who died, by their names anyways. They call it Gusimbra. If, for example, you say, oh, your granddad, and you say his name to people, they say you Gusimbra them. It's a bad word. You are reminding people. Deo's voice trailed off. You're reminding people of something bad? Yes. It's so hard to understand because in the Western world, again, Dale left the thought half finished. People try to remember? Yeah. Here in Burundi, they try to forget? Exactly, he said. So this young man, Dale Gracias, was a medical student about halfway through medical school when Civil War began in 1993. He narrowly survived the onset of that war. He survived because he left the door to his room open and the men who would have killed him assumed that he had already fled. He made a six-months-long escape, first from Burundi's war and then from the genocide in Rwanda, and then back to Burundi, and then almost by accident, he got transported to America. He arrived at JFK in New York City with $200 in his pocket and a visa obtained under false pretenses. That's been straightened out. No English, no friends or relations, and memories of horror so fresh that he sometimes confused past and present. His first trip on a subway, he got lost for most of a day. He eked out a sort of living delivering groceries. At night, he slept in Central Park. And then one day, sick and near despair, he delivered groceries to a small Catholic church where he met an ex-contemplative nun, a truly amazing and indefatigable woman, who decided that what Deo needed was a family, set out to find him one, refused to quit, and finally succeeded. He was essentially adopted by a childless American couple, a painter and a sociologist, neither young nor rich, but uh, big-hearted and brave, obviously. And uh, less than two years after landing in New York, Dale was enrolled at Columbia University. I was struck by this story the first time I heard it from Dale, uh, struck by its various remarkable features, by its drama. Among other things, it opened up for me a sense of wonder. Uh, having heard what Dale went through, I, I felt, or ho anyway hoped, that I would never again look at anonymous faces in quite the same way, uh, particularly the faces of people with foreign accents, particularly in places like New York, janitors, hotel maids, taxi drivers, young men delivering groceries. Who are they really? What memories and dreams do they carry? What abilities that they may never get to use? But what drew me to Deo's story, first of all, what made me think I might like to write about this was something rather small, Recounting his time of homelessness, Dale told me that before he headed for bed in Central Park at night, he'd look all around to make sure that no strangers were watching, because anyone who saw him entering the park at that hour would guess that he was homeless. When he told me this, I thought of my daughter. As a young teenager one time, visiting New York, she started across a busy street against the light. My wife yelled at her, and in cold fury afterward, my daughter said, Thanks a lot, Mom, for ruining my reputation in New York City. <laughs> she doesn't like me to tell that story. But, but the truth is that I, I recognized Deo's feelings. 
and not just in my daughter. I can imagine myself in his place, uh, fearing the eyes of strangers, fearing not the darkness of the park or what might happen to me if I surrendered myself to sleep there, but the uh, pity or disdain of strangers who would never be anything but strangers. And feeling this, I thought I could find a way into his story if he decided that he was willing to let me tell it, as he eventually was. The other day, someone told me I was a, a purposive writer. Uh, I think that is a word. I'm not sure. But I think by purposive, she meant writing that aims to expose and analyze important problems and to offer persuasive solutions. But somehow it seems important to say that I don't deserve that compliment. Uh, some writers do. Writers who understand that the world's recurring catastrophes aren't accidents, but the products of socioeconomic uh, and political structures with histories that can be unearthed. These writers focus their books on large groups of people. They may pause now and then to describe individuals, but as a rule, they do this in order to illustrate points that they want to make about what seems more important to them, which is the fates of populations. I respect the motives that often lie behind that kind of writing, to expose suffering in the hope of lessening it, to give, as the saying goes, a voice to the voiceless. I've learned from people who write theoretically, I'm forever in their debt. But I have a hard time bending my own mind around generalizations. Generally, all I can think of are the exceptions. To me, the sheer scale of big subjects, subjects like genocide and war and epidemic disease, makes them incomprehensible through any single approach. Uh, I, I don't think one could claim to understand an event like the Great Depression only simply by reading uh, about one fictional family's experiences in the Grapes of Wrath, but I also don't think we, anyone could approach an understanding of an event like the Holocaust without reading at least one account of an individual life that was enmeshed in the Holocaust in a book like Primo Levi's great novel, The Periodic Table. Stories can be a, a window on enormity and enormousness, a means, to borrow from William Blake, to see a world in a grain of sand. But I think they go deeper. I think we are born responding to stories. They're, they're one way we organize the world's chaos and one way in which we pass that information on from generation to generation. The best stories are living monuments to memories that have to be preserved, uh, and they don't need any other justification, I think. By, by training all the Dickens that my mother used to read me, and by inclination and probably by deficiency, I understand the world best through stories, and because the engine of any story is human character, I've spent most of my years as a writer looking, first of all, not for subjects, but for characters. A small town cop whom I met because I was speeding. <laughs> my wife met him later the same day for the same reason, <laughs> and, uh, and he didn't give her a ticket. Turned out that, that he, this is really true of him. He didn't give women tickets as a rule because he really hated to see women cry. <laughs> there was a pair of old men in a nursing home room who were spending their last days in that vestibule to eternity um, doing something more interesting and more difficult than playing bingo, which was making friends. There was a team of computer engineers trying to build a new machine, essentially against their company's wishes. I remember that my interest in those engineers quickened when one of the team took me aside and started telling me about what he called the wars. He used all this martial language. There was blood on the floor. There were people who shot from the hip. And as near as I could tell, he was talking about the creation of immobile plastic boxes. But, 
that also interested me. On one occasion, I, I did look for a person in a profession, an elementary school teacher, but once I found her in a grubby school in a rundown Massachusetts mill town, what I set out to do was to tell the story of a year inside her classroom. If that story happened to reveal some general truths about the problems of public education in America, so much the better I felt. But it would have been impossible, at least for me, to generalize that teacher and her class with them so vividly alive in front of me. I once wrote a book about the building of a house, an idea I got from having been my own really disastrous carpenter for a time. But what fascinated me once I got into that project were the carpenters and the homeowners and the architect and the relations among them. Uh, a menage a trois without sexual connotations. <laughs> I also wrote a, a short memoir about my year as an undistinguished sol soldier in Vietnam, and that was the hardest character for me to, to describe with anything like accuracy. My, my book, Mountains Beyond Mountains, essentially began when I ran into Paul Farmer completely by accident in Haiti, uh, and Strength in What Remains began in much the same way when I met Deo on a visit to Paul Farmer. In both cases, I was interested initially not in the issues that interested those men, but in the outlines of their lives, which seemed eminently suited to storytelling. I probably shouldn't admit this, but, the, but what I aspire to, aspire to, is art. Art has the great power to transform the experience of suffering and injustice into something beautiful. And I think others have said this, of course, that art is created with a certain obliviousness to commerce and also to didacticism. The great storyteller Jorge Luis Borges once said that if you write a story about time, the one word forbidden you is the word time. When you talk about a book you've written, you're expected quite legitimately to say what it's about. When it comes to this new book of mine, I feel sort of shaky about the answers. I do know that it's not about Africa, uh, which so many of us Americans conceive of as one vast, dysfunctional country. I know I didn't want to make Burundi seem uh, exotic. I wanted to make it comprehensible. We hear about mass slaughter in distant countries, and we imagine that murder and mayhem define those locales. Uh, I think that I hope that Deo's story would humanize our view of Burundi and also open up a part of New York City that seems designed to be invisible, the service entrances of the Upper East Side, the camping sites in Central Park. Uh, what else is this book about? Certainly it has to do with war and genocide and with courage and endurance, the generosity of strangers, the uses and disuses of memory, but we already know the basic truths about those subjects, that war and genocide are deplorable, that human beings are capable of great resilience, that charity happens, that memory can be an ungovernable torment. What, what I wanted was to allow readers to experience those facts, not as truisms, but as we experience them in our lives, to experience them again through Deo. This is what good writers do. They make the world new again. I think the storyteller's central job is to catch the reflection of individual human beings, each by definition unique on the page. But the richest factual narratives usually have something in addition. If you're drawn, first of all, to an individual, you're also drawn to try to understand the worlds that they inhabit, especially the subjects that preoccupy them. In Deo's case, the main subjects were and are public health and medicine and the ravaged state of his country after 13 years of civil war. 
When I first began following him around, Deo had permanent residency status and was soon to become an American citizen. He didn't have to go back to Burundi, where public health is all but non-existent and where even now hospitalized patients who can't pay their bills are detained, imprisoned essentially, without food or care. But mainly because of those ills, Deo returned continually and amid the post-war wreckage, with the help of his legions of American and Burundian friends, he created an organization called Village Health Works, uh, which has built a clinic and public health system free to those who can't pay in a rural village. This clinic was a pile of rocks when I first visited the site with Deo in the summer of 2006. By the fall of 2008, it was providing food to the hungriest people in the area and clean water to all of them. And it was also a medical center which, in its first year and a half, treated 28,000 different patients, most of them for free. People come there for, for help from all over the country, and some come from other countries, too, on week-long treks from the Congo and Tanzania. And some have come not for medical help, but only to look at the place. When Deo asked one of these travelers why he had come, the man replied, to see America. When I first heard it, I thought this was a misconception for us Americans to live up to. But when I heard President Obama's uh, speech in Ghana, I changed my mind a little bit. He imagined a partnership between America and Africa, one that would be grounded in mutual responsibility, which would be a wonderful change. Village Health Works, it seems to me, is a sm one small example of this, a model of African and American cooperation, an instrument of peace. Uh, for Deo, I think that this enterprise has been in part a way to deal with memory. In the end, it's neither forgetting the horrors of the past nor dwelling on them that's worked for him. For him, the answer has been remembering and acting. It's also been the realization of an old dream, a dream of his youth, to build a clinic that would serve the kinds of people he grew up among. Thus, it seems to represent a sewing back together of his life, a life that was torn in two by war. And I think that like all true idealists, ones who combine idealism and competence, Deo wanted to build something larger than himself. Uh, Burundi is a country that was ripped apart by largely artificial differences between two groups of people differences that were exaggerated for the benefit of a few. Deo has inspired an antidote, or the beginning of a possible antidote, which focuses on something that unites all of us, which is our common vulnerability to illness and injury and our common hope for life. Personally, I find this uh, very moving, <laughs> and in part because the, this clinic enjoys such enormous support from its community, especially from the women of the village who have a large say in its operations. I, I think I'll, I'll end here by uh, reading you a short passage from near the end of my book. Speaking at a fundraiser in New York, Deo told this story. This past summer, we needed some help to make a road that goes to our site passable. A friend of mine told me, well, Deo, there's a great Belgian construction company that builds roads in Burundi and Rwanda and the Congo, and I was so excited. So I went to talk to the representative of the company he sent someone to look at the road and estimated a cost of at least 50,000 US dollars, not to pave the road, but just to widen it and make it passable. I went back frustrated, wondering how to tell the Kigutu community this bad news. As I was explaining this to them, one woman with a baby crying on her back said to me, you will not pay a penny for this road. We become so much sick because we are poor, but we are not poor because we are lazy. We will work on this road with our own hands. 
The next day, 166 people showed up with pickaxes, hoes, machetes, and other tools. One of the volunteers was a woman who came to work with a sick child. When a friend of mine and I looked at the baby, we saw that the baby was sweating. I then asked the mother why she came to work with a child that sick, and she said to me, well, I've already lost three children, and I know this one is next, whether I stay at home or come to work here, so it's better for me to join others and make my contribution, which will help to save someone else's child who will be sick but alive when you have a clinic in Kigutu. The entire road, six kilometers long, was rebuilt by these people with machetes and hoes. The same day the road was finished, the representative of the Belgian road construction company called me to negotiate the price. You can imagine how I felt to get that call from him. I said to him, thank you so much for your call, but it's already done. He was obviously shocked and said to me, what do you mean? Who did it? We are the only road construction company in the entire region. And I said, not anymore. Welcome back to Word of Mouth. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, journalist and author Tracy Kidder. His newest book, Strength in What Remains, profiles a young African man named Deo who escaped genocide in Rwanda and neighboring Burundi in 1994. I spoke to Tracy Kidder last night at the Music Hall in Portsmouth as part of the Writers on a New England Stage series. In the first half of the show, Tracy Kidder talked about why he wanted to tell Deo's story. I asked him how he gets inside of a story, even seemingly well, inside I of Deo's head. I talked to him a lot, and I revisited the stations of his life, both in New York and in Rwanda and Burundi. I tell this book in two parts. The first is really my telling of his memories, the memories that he told to me, and the second is about going back to the sights of those memories, to see him in the throes of those memories. Partly, I, I wanted to acknowledge openly to the reader that you know these, some of these memories are 30 years old, many 14, 12 years old. Obviously, couldn't, they couldn't be entirely accurate. I, I wasn't able to verify everything. I wasn't able to check everything. Although, I, what strikes me as the mo most remarkable part of the story, the part that happened in New York, I was able to verify almost completely. But I just wanted to make that acknowledgement. You are foremost in the narrative nonfiction, narrative journalism field, picking up the mantle of Tom Wolfe, I would say, and John McPhee. You're making a face, but I'm going to argue well, that no, there that's are a lot true. Of, there are a lot of good writers. <laughs> but you do pull us into his mind while writing the story, but how about the journalist part of you? How convinced are you of the accuracy of his memories? As a great nonfiction writer once said, uh, I think they are in their entrails true. I'm sure they are in their entrails true. You know, going back to those places with him, was a, a terribly difficult thing. Uh, not for me, but for him. It was as though those memories were lying there in wait for him to ambush him. And I, I, I'm not sure that if I had been smart enough to foresee that, that I would have done this at all. I sometimes think I shouldn't have. But really? Well, I mean, to re-traumatize someone doesn't seem to me the, a very good, nice thing to do. And I also, I mean, I have, as I write in this book, I have some mixed feelings about this business of remembering this is, this is a big question right now in therapeutic circles and psychiatric circles, whether or not talk therapy and retelling, reliving the trauma is a good idea. But you did. You gave him several opportunities, and you said, do you really want to do this? And he continued. Why do you think he wanted to continue? I, I don't know for sure. I can't speak for him. But he did say at one point he didn't want to be silenced early on. <laughs> he said that. I, I'm not sure. 
That must be a bit of a crapshoot for you. I mean, you get interested in someone's character, you spend a lot of time and invest a lot of energy with them. When do you decide to back off? Well, I, I try to get these things straightened out early on before I've invested uh, much time and when there can't be any hard feelings or uh, loss of time and energy. And so far, I've been pretty lucky. You know, you can't be sure. It is a little like jumping out a window and not knowing what floor you're on. Mm. Isn't that what George Orwell said? I, or, no, he said it was like a long illness. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, the story does unravel bit by bit. At first, we meet Deo in New York. We really actually don't know what's happened to him, but we get these little breadcrumbs, these little ideas of what might have happened. And it's much bigger than a story of a refugee in New York City. He gradually makes his way. He meets this couple, Nancy and Charlie Wolf, a very generous couple. They help pay his tuition into Colombia. And then, boom, we're back in Burundi. We're really walking through the depths of hell with him for six months of his life. Mm-hmm. So you're relaying a, histo- a history through one character. What does that bring to the reader that the nightly news or even a long investigative newspaper story can't do? Well, you know, he said something very interesting. He said, you know, history and the nightly news, they, they distort the present of the past. And, and everyone who's been through something like this sees it in his or her own way, you know. So it's not in any sense synoptic and not in any sense comprehensive, but... But it's also the real side of it. I mean, you know, and it can stand for other people's experiences. It's just the way I see the world. I'm not sure I could uh, digest something that wasn't about people that I could imagine myself being, you know. I I would, when I imagined being him, as I wrote, I I had one simple thought. I would not have survived. And he does survive. In October 93, he very narrowly escapes mm-hmm. from the hospital in Mutahu, mm-hmm. where he is working as an intern. You mentioned that he, he didn't close his door. He hid under his bed, mm-hmm. and the militiamen passed him by, thinking that he must have run away. He has another miraculous, or quite a few miraculous brushes yeah. with the militia. He's really ch- he's stepping one foot in front of them. He gets on a plane instead of a bus, and the bus gets seized. What role do you think Providence plays in this? Well, or do you think it does? I tried to address that. Yes. In the presence of uh, the ex-contemplative nun who helped him. And of course, she's a very religious person. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty much agnostic, I'm afraid. It's an awfully wimpy way to be. But, uh, I, you know, I suspect that, you know, so many people did die in these two calamities. Those who, who survived probably all had various strokes of luck, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, Burundi's war went on for 13 years, or depending on how you, wh- where you date the end of it, but for a good long time. But yeah, he had a lot of close calls. How did you come to understand the mayhem in Burundi and in Wanda personally? Uh, you know, neighbors chopping each other up and abetting in the slaughter of their neighbors. They were very different. Conflicts. They're very, very different. Uh, histories of the two countries have had terribly unfortunate effects on each other. Perhaps the best analog that I can give you comes from a young Burundian friend of mine who said that in his village there were the two brothers who had each married the other's sister. And uh, 
they were eating outside one night in the village and you could hear from some distance away, one brother could hear that his sister crying and called out to her and she said that her husband was beating her. And so he started beating his wife. This was his analog to what Rwanda and how Rwanda and Burundi had, had, had affected each other. What happened in Rwanda was without any question, although there are, there'll always be those who will question these things, a genocide, a state-sponsored slaughter of one ethnic group. In Burundi, it was the minority ethnic group that was in power for years and years and years and which had practiced just systematic discrimination against the majority and when there were uprisings had put them down with tremendous ferocity. What happened in Burundi really, though, as it evolved, was a, was a civil war, not a genocide. And it went on and on and on and on. And uh, was instrumental in ending it were African nations. People in this country scarcely heard about right. it. Well, there's something that you write about that maybe becomes a larger metaphor later when you're, I believe you're in Burundi with him at this time, in Rwanda, sorry, uh, when Deo is at a hospital and a patient comes in with an enlarged spleen with scars on his abdomen, Deo recognizes these scars as burn scars. And he says that this is a way that they attempted palliative care. They would actually burn the center of pain to, as he said, distract pain with pain. In a country that has been systematically denied the fruits of modern medicine, um, what's a parent, for instance, to do? But Deo saw with these burn marks, and presumably a parent had heated a pipe in a fire and made burns around the painful place, distracting pain with pain. It's an awful form of palliation. But for many people, the only thing available. Is it a larger it, metaphor for what was happening? Uh, Dale thinks so, yeah. yeah. I want to get to when you were following Dale around and the role that you were playing in this. You mentioned the first part of the book. He's talking mostly about what happened in New York, some of his memories. The second part is really, it strikes me as living with his memories and retelling the story. Yeah. And that's when you really join the narrative. And I'm wondering about that decision for you to come into the book. I'm, I'm remembering from Mountains Beyond Mountains of you kind of huffing and puffing up a hill behind Paul Farmer mm -hmm. as he's crossing mountaintops, you know, to go from one village to the next. You were right there from the start. But why did, why did you keep yourself out of this book for so long? Well... There's no theoretical reason. I, I think of the point of view, you know, as a choice among tools it's, or a choice among positions. And it's a very important choice for any storyteller. You know, where do I stand to tell my story from? I've written a lot of books that were strictly in the third person. Uh, in the case of Mountains Beyond Mountains, I felt that the first person narrator was essential. But I do this by trial and error. And, and with this book, the whole scheme of it came about from failure. I was trying to make some things come to life in the third person, and I, and I couldn't do it. And I tried them in the first person, and it worked. So <laughs> I then built this structure around that. Well, is there a larger role for you in this narrative? There's a point where you follow him to Columbia, Deo to Columbia, mm -hmm. and he was showing you where he attended classes, a lot of philosophy classes, beautiful <coughs> campus, and he was safe, you know, far from the horror yeah. there. But you posit that the, the safety must have stood like a wall between his memories and his understanding of it. And yeah. I'm wondering if you played any role in his making sense of that. Were you a gate? Were you an opening in that wall in any way? I don't think so. I really don't. Um, all of this was in the past, and I think he had begun to make his own 
sense of it. The fact that he, that he made philosophy his second major astonished me. Um, you know, it's probably the least marketable thing you could study <laughs> in college. Uh, I asked him why he did it, and he said, because I wanted to understand what had happened to me. But of course, you know, like all students of philosophy, he got not answers but more questions. But he did get, get an opening for his mind. But I mean, the questions that he was asking were, were the really fundamental ones about the nature of man and God, you know, um, good and evil. Uh, for which no one has ever come up with this, you know, satisfactory answers. And I think that when he found his way to Partners in Health and, you know, Paul Farmer and others there, he told me, you know, it was like, it was as if he'd come home. Uh, and he was suddenly among people who he thought could understand what he'd been through and, and the kind of place where he'd grown up. And I think out of that and out of this memory of having tried to build a clinic years before, I, I think it began to blossom in his mind the thought that you know, sometimes the answer lies in your hands. You know, you have to do something. I think uh, building this clinic, you know, service is for many people the, the real solution to the, to the tremendous problems in their lives. And for him, I think it has been. It's at Partners in Health where he begins to tell his story, really. Yeah, he, he had not told anyone his story. The trouble is that once you start talking, it's impossible to stop. Mm. Once he found these particularly these two people, both Paul Farmer and the medical director of Partners in Health, Joya Mukherjee. He, for a time, he told his story relentlessly to them. Um, and then, unfortunately for me, by the time I showed up on his doorstep, he was getting more and more reticent about it. They're unspeakable horrors. I mean, you described mm-hmm. them in great detail. And what was your line for pressing him on and pulling back? I know when you went to back to Burundi and he was stopping at a number of memorials, there was a point where you just thought, enough. Well, in Rwanda, yeah. There, in there Rwanda, are not, sorry. There many memorials in Burundi. There are a few. Um, my understanding of Burundian culture, which is a, this is a dangerous thing to say. I'm scarcely an anthropologist, and I, maybe I'm only speaking about the culture of one family, but it's pretty stoical. Silence is valued, uh, and you don't cry openly. So I think his response to some of these sites that he went back to was pretty extraordinary. And, you know, I could see it was um, deeply troubling to him. But at a certain point, he <laughs> this was his trip, and he was taking me on it. Actually, at one point, I demanded that we not go to a certain place, which is a pretty strange thing for a journalist to do, if you think about it. <laughs> You've written about a lot of places where people don't necessarily want to go, about... Yeah. Haiti, about Vietnam, and what was it, 1968, 1969 in your memoir. Uh-huh. Uh, what is it? Is this a goal for you, Tracy This is Kidder? where the best stories lie. <laughs> is it? that? Yeah, but I, I wonder, if for the reader, do you want to knock us out of some sense of comfort or complacency? Well, I, I don't know. I, I really don't have that sort of motive in mind. I want to write accurate stories. If I possibly can, I'm sure I make mistakes. I don't believe that I'm writing the truth with a capital T, but I do try to write about what I think is true, and I don't want to write about a, a made-up Pollyanna world. On the other hand, I mean, what I do like in stories is to see people up against things, and, and in some cases surmounting them. I, I mean, you know, I, I guess my general feeling is that in a world that seems to be so governed by chaos and violence, it is comforting to know 
there is at least an effective opposition out there to those things. I'm not saying that it will prevail, you know, but it's nice to know they're there. And I, I have find myself drawn to the company of people who were part of that opposition. Maybe a follow-on question here from the audience. Your work has seemed to progress from lighter topics to heavier, more global and urgent topics. What do you attribute the evolution to? Just happenstance, really. Well, I mean, I always thought the topics were important <laughs> when I wrote about them. Uh, <laughs> for some reason, for years and years, I wrote about topics that were very close to my New England home. In fact, by the end, they were, they were just down the street. And, and I, I sort of felt like I had to get out of the neighborhood. But... <laughs> and, and I'd gone off to Haiti to do this story about American soldiers and ran into Paul Farmer and got just a sense of who he was uh, but I didn't pursue him for quite some time for six years actually frankly I was trying to avoid the subject of Haiti it, it really shocked me I, you know, I thought I was pretty worldly wise. you were there to cover a story you I was were there, there to, to cover, cover a story but what, what, some of the things I saw I'd you know, I'd been to Vietnam, but I'd never seen so much unnecessary misery and, and sickness and, uh, and death. And, you know, I, I came back from that little story trying to reconcile the fact of Haiti with my own very privileged American life, you know, trying to hang on to my conviction that I'd earned all my privileges. And the problem with a conviction like that, taking a conviction like that to a place like Haiti, is that it falls apart the minute you ask yourself the simplest question, which is, what if I'd been born Haitian? And I mean, and I knew that, I just knew that if I started following this guy around, he'd disturb my peace of mind. <laughs> that story prepared me for Dale. <laughs> this is from one of the listeners, uh, word of mouth actually sent us this question. You slip so easily between following different people's lives. Who are you when you're not documenting someone else's story? I'm a much better person when I'm following <laughs> people around. <laughs> I listen. I'm polite. I tend not to drink too much. Things like that. <laughs> My own life is not all that interesting, honestly. It really isn't. Well, how do you retain yourself? How do you draw the line between you and them? You must be living inside of their heads, in a way, in their lives. Well, when I'm, when I'm writing a book, I, uh, I get pretty much into it. I find it very hard to do anything else. And that includes remembering that I was supposed to pick up some groceries or fill the car with Not gas. speed in the I car. I forget those right. things. Yeah, right. I do forget it. It, it's a, a compelling and wonderful job, really. You know, I get paid to meet very interesting people and to satisfy my idle curiosity about any number of things. I have absolutely no complaints. Can you indulge no legitimate me in, ones. In, in a quick story uh, that gets to a larger point? Um, a couple of years ago, I worked with a young woman, Fembi Angubani. She did a diary of living with AIDS in South Africa. She's sadly since died. But Tembi came to the United States because she was on a, a radio tour and a media tour. And she had been called to Washington, and she had done a C-SPAN panel, and she was telling us all about this panel. This was inside of WBUR, public radio station, all of us radio people standing around, and she said, yes, and President Clinton was there, and Richard Gere was there, and Paul Farmer was there, and we all were like, oh, Paul Farmer? <laughs> <laughs> And you've made you've made kind of a celebrity out of him, and I just wonder how you feel about that. Well, look, I mean, he was already. By the time I started following him around, he was already very well known in infectious disease, medical anthropology, epidemiology. You know, 
I suppose it is true that he's got a somewhat wider audience now, but I'm not sure it wouldn't have happened, you know, one way or the other. I actually have somewhat mixed feelings. I, I think that that, my, that book of mine has done a lot for the, the cause of that particular organization, and I happen to believe that that's an extraordinary organization, a real model of how we ought to be dispensing international aid. Uh, so I'm happy about that, but I don't, I'm a little sad about the, the reactions that my book has elicited from some people, not, not a Huge number, but enough. How, what kinds of reactions? Um, moral envy. Uh, really, mostly from my generation, the baby boom generation, otherwise known as a generation of twits, who, uh, <laughs> who, who seem to think that all of life's you know, moments are, were originated by them. But it, it strikes me, you know, the, the kind of people who perhaps imagined that they, were, they would do something like, like what he's done and, you know, ended up, not doing that, and who feel diminished somehow by his example, and to make themselves feel better, look around for chinks in his moral armor, and when they can't find any that are important, they make them up, <laughs> you know, and to the extent that that, that has um, been wounding to him. I'm sorry, you know. Did you hope to make Dale famous with this story? No, uh, I didn't, actually, and he sure didn't. He really didn't. Has he responded to the book? Uh, I don't know. I gave him the book, but I'm not sure he's read it. I think he's very publicity shy. Someday I think he'll, he'll, he'll read it and tell me what he thinks. You but I'll wait for him to do that. You've raised money uh, for Partners in Health, and you will be raising money for Deo's clinic Absolutely. as well. Do you feel like you're crossing any kind of line as a journalist? Uh, well, at, at first I, I, I wondered when I had finished Mountains Beyond Mountains if I was doing that. You know, it wasn't my place to proselytize for partners in health. And then I thought, well, why isn't it my place? I went out in the world. I came across this extraordinary organization. I approached it with a skepticism. I'd cultivated over 30 years of writing nonfiction stories, and I came away convinced that it was for real. To me, I, I draw a, a, a distinction between writing these books and allowing myself with the causes that I happen to have been writing about. I, th I feel they're different things. I mean, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to write next, but whatever it is, I, I don't think it's going to be about public health and medicine. <laughs> uh, but I intend to go on uh, trying to help those organizations, both organizations, raise money, as long as they want me around. Do you keep in touch with the people that you write about? Some of them. Well, I'm in touch with Paul Farmer quite a lot. Um, you don't get out of his orbit. <laughs> in large part because you don't want to, you know. Um, it's a lot of fun to be around him. Others I've, I have lost touch with. My editor says that he plans sometime to get them all in one room <laughs> and meet with them and see what happens. And hopefully a microphone. <laughs> Do you think that the work that you're doing, narrative nonfiction, narrative journalism, is picking up where newspapers have had to back off? I think it's really different. Um, I have the luxury of time whereas, you know, reporters are off to file every day or, you know, under time constraints, if no, nothing else. And they do have to hue to a, a, a standard of, they ought to probably, to a standard of objectivity. Now we know from the postmodernist that that's, and the deconstructionist that this is impossible, preposterous. I don't think that just because objectivity is impossible to attain, uh, that it isn't a goal worth pursuing. 
I, I don't feel like I have this, the same rules. I, I just try to make my stories accurate. And, I, and as I said, I know I've made some mistakes. But, you know, what happens for me is that I acquire a, what I hope is justified belief in a, in a story. And, and I, I mean, in the case of Paul Farmer, for instance, in the end, what I really wanted to do about that character, bringing that character to life, was also to make him as palatable to readers as I ultimately found him to be. And part of doing that, I felt, was, and this is why I used the first person, was to, to, to tell this little sub-narrative in that story of my own, my own struggle with his outsized virtue. You describe his anthropological sense beautifully in Mountains Beyond Mountains. And you, according to this audience member, are so good that it, at an anthropologist's eye. Can you describe the delicate balance, that viewer-participant balance, and how you achieve it? I, I don't know. Uh, you know, in, in my normal life, I'm completely judgmental about everything. <laughs> but, in, but, you know, something about this job draws you away from that. I mean, I just want to understand why people are doing what they're doing, and if you start judging it right away, you're never going to figure that out. When it comes to telling a story, it really just has to do with what seems to me like the best way to do it, uh, you know, the way that works best, that makes a story believable, you know, because it's not enough just to tell a story that, that's true. Uh, you have to make it believable to your readers. Thank you to Tracy Kidder Thank for you. joining us. Thanks, Virginia. Nice.